This episode of the Reality Check Podcast is brought to you by my book, How to Get Your Shit Together, the last self-help book you will ever need. In my personal, realistic, and down-to-earth style, I share what it takes to survive the impact of mental illness and childhood trauma. To go from a place of barely surviving to passionately thriving. I draw from my lived experience with mental illness, childhood trauma, and the recovery process, providing practical advice, tips, and techniques for overcoming anxiety, defeating depression, moving on from trauma, getting organized, finding meaning, and following your dreams. How to get your shit together has the potential to turn your life around, to improve your mental state, functionality, and overall health. It's out now as a paperback, ebook, and audiobook. And you can grab yourself a copy via the link in the show notes. The Reality Check Podcast is brought to you by Kamigo, the world's first patented technological device that provides quick relief for anxiety, stress, and panic attacks by combining three scientifically proven methods that activate the parasympathetic nervous system and calm the body. The Kamigo provides adaptive breathing regulation. It measures the depth of your breath and provides you with feedback to help slow down your breathing and thus calm you down. It does this through multisensory stimulation, which acts as a form of present state awareness and grounding. And it also employs aromatherapy, adding a calming scent to provide therapeutic relief for rapid relaxation. I use the Kamigo daily at the start of my meditation sessions to help calm me down and focus me. And I also use it at night as a way to de-stress, relax, and move into a peaceful night's sleep. Reality Check Podcast listeners will receive $30 off their order with the coupon code ZACKPPHILLIPS or via the link in the show notes. Every day, I open up my social media to 100 plus comments, 100 plus likes, 100 plus new followers, and 20 or more direct messages. And I feel just as lonely as ever. (laughs) It's interesting to see what a small level of success online does to the mental state, and then extrapolate that widely. I'm getting so much messages on my kink sex positive account that I literally can't respond to them all. I can't comment. I can't read it all. I simply don't have the time. But nonetheless, it doesn't change how I'm feeling. It doesn't change my mental state. I'm currently on that account at 22,000 plus followers, getting getting bigger every day. But my mental state hasn't changed. And I wonder, or I can see, I suppose, that were I to continue this, as I continue this, into the future, if it gets 100,000 followers or a million followers, which I don't see why it couldn't, 
well, that won't impact my mental state either. It won't make me feel less lonely. Numbers alone are meaningless. It's the connection that matters. Because all the likes in the world won't make you feel less lonely. It's interesting because prior to starting this, prior to going into any online space, there's this sort of the dopamine hit, I suppose, of social media. You get a like, you're like, oh, that's great. You know, I post something and it gets more responses and likes than something else. I'm like, oh, why did I like that? I should do more of that. It's like social conditioning turned inwards. It's weird. But having gone from one side, you know, and traversing to the other side, I can't help but feel that there is zero correlation to mental state, with a slight caveat. The slight caveat is that the bigger I grow, the more chance I do have to form legitimate connection um, with people that are enjoying my stuff and reaching out and connecting. You know, there's more opportunities to find like-minded people. There's more opportunities to chat with people. That's true. And the other caveat is that the bigger you get, the more opportunity there is to make money. And the making money would reduce anxiety and free you up to do other things. So there, there is a caveat there. But the likes alone, the comments alone, the, the numbers alone are useless, meaningless. And I can't help but wonder how much of my own motivation to grow is a misguided approach to just trying to get bigger, trying to get numbers, trying to do this sort of thing. Because now that I'm, you know, I haven't made it, quote unquote, but I'm making it, and it's, uh, it's less fulfilling than you would hope. So I wanted to share <laughs> that piece of uh, dreary news with you. <laughs> it doesn't matter how big you get, you're going to be sad anyway. Uh, look, not that I'm sad. I just, you know, go up and down and I tend to record this podcast when something really good's happened, but most of the time when I'm in a lower mental state. It's interesting, over the weekend I had a party and the party was on Saturday night. But on the Friday, all day, I was having a panic attack-ish symptom. <sighs> Tightness in my belly. Erratic thoughts. Not feeling like I could take a full breath. I calmed myself down, you know, did all of the things that I do to help myself out. And my partner said to me, she's like, you know, you don't have to go to the party. You don't have to turn up. Like, you can, you can bail. And my response was, well, I'm already paying the price. I may as well get the reward, right? Um, and then the next day, I went and had a great time. It was lovely. I just, I just sort of wake every day downloading this general resting anxiety. So if I wake up and there's about five minutes, and then to a small or great extent, Anxious ruminations flood my brain. Maybe it's, maybe there's a lot going on. Maybe it's a little, but it's like five minutes of peace and then bam, here's the world. And it's all like these little bullshit things, just unfounded work anxiety, recalling weird conversations, 
thinking about goals that I should be going for, things that should be happening, you know, this death by shoulds and coulds, until I'm contemplating everything all at once. This sort of compulsive desire to check social media, to check my emails, to check my work Discord channel. (laughs) And it's like, is this going to be every day for the rest of my life? This, this mundane resting anxiety. You know that quote from um, Fight Club where he's talking about being the, the middle children of the world. There's no war. There's no sort of overarching purpose. We're just sort of here to exist. And that makes us upset. It's like I, I feel that. I feel that inside me. I've got all of these little resting anxieties but no overarching enemy or purpose to deal with. It's like, fuck, give me conflict. Give me a goal, give me a, like a, oh, something to fight back at. I mean, you know, don't, because that'd be fucking terrible. I mean, really, the better benefit would be for me to just be able to process the anxiety to let go of it. <laughs> but part of me knows that I thrive on deep conflict. Like, like when shit's hitting the fan, it's like, oh, that's when I shine. It's this mundane, resting, just grind sort of feeling that, we're all sort of feeling, it's like, we. I just, I don't know, I just don't feel like there's, we're, we're necessarily meant to be, <laughs> or not, in in the sort of society we've created for ourselves, humans in general. I went for a run this morning and I was listening to an audiobook, which was blocking off the family, and I was, you know, running in shoes, on concrete, through the streets, seeing people in cars. And, you know, houses made of of metal and stone and brick and wood. And I'm like, this is so, we are so far from the animal that we we evolved into that no wonder there's, there's distress. No wonder we're not, no wonder there's problems. No wonder we're all struggling because far out, we are so far from the norm. We are so far from where we should be or where we have, have been or where we evolved into. I'm just wondering if there's a way to, thread the needle on this and find lasting happiness and find lasting joy, find just contentment, acceptance, or at the very least, just a release from anxiety. Like I said, I record this podcast when I'm struggling. So it sort of paints me as as not in the best headspace, because other days I feel like I'm pumping, but I don't know, I guess I use this as a diary. I'm in the process of making a book called Write Evocative Poetry, or How to Write Evocative Poetry, and another one on creative writing for healing, or, you know, finding peace through poetry. Because I do. I find writing to be tremendously therapeutic, as well as talking uh, to you, dear listener, if you are listening, like this, because it helps me to get out some of the stuff in my mind, you know, through talking we sort of recover. And maybe me rambling on myself will help other people. Maybe not, but either way it benefits me, so I'm going to keep doing it. (laughs) Uh, Just, you know, that that daily grind of like, what's the point of continuing to do this? And then I step back and I see the smiles of my sons. And I see, you know, beauty in art, in movement, in play, in sex in the world, and I'm like, hmm, okay, that's the point. (sighs) But why do I have to wake up with this resting anxiety? You know, why do I have this 
base level of tension. I know why I have the base level of tension. The trauma in the past. It's just it's just frustrating. You know, it's a daily, daily grind. When I was on the run this morning, halfway through the run I took my headphones out and just listened to the silence, the birds chirping, moving through through with the sun on my skin. I'm like, ah, oh, this is where I should be. This is the point. This is the purpose. This is more natural. Because it is. I realise we don't have enough access to silence in our day. We have the opportunity to listen to podcasts, to read, to go on social media, to talk, to fill every single second with sound, with input. I can't help but wonder if that's causing duress. You tell me. Anyway, that's all I have time for today. I will leave you with a chapter from the book, How to Get Your Shit Together. It will be one, I think, on overcoming philosophical traps, because I need to re-listen to it. This idea of how you can tie yourself into knots, and mentally, and that can cause duress. It's out now as a paperback, ebook, and audiobook. So listen to the listen to the episode. Let me know what you think. If you like it, you can read it. You can grab a copy. Anyway, have a great day. Chapter five point six: Overcome philosophical traps. Ignorance may be bliss, but it certainly is not freedom, except in the minds of those who prefer darkness to light and chains to liberty. The more true information we can acquire, the better for our enfranchisement. Robert Hugh Benson I'm on a constant search for meaning. I read, meditate, study, contemplate and challenge myself daily. This process involves exploring a diverse range of philosophical concepts, lines of reasoning, cultural opinions, and differing points of view. My basic goal with this search is to ensure that I'm on the right path, if such a thing is even possible, and that I am honing the lens by which I judge myself and the world by. The search for freedom means running from ignorance, but unfortunately, this can also result in a distinct lack of bliss. Words and concepts have power. They can act like a seed or a virus. The impact is small at first, barely noticed, but over time the impact grows and the concept begins to seep into all aspects of life. If left unchallenged, it can potentially consume us. This is why people read a book, hear a speech, or join a club, and in a short time they are a completely different person. Their worldview has been completely redefined to be based entirely around a new concept. This change may be positive, neutral, or negative, but unfortunately, it is impossible to know how you will be impacted by a piece of content prior to consuming it. The ignorance is bliss approach to life would suggest to bury our heads in the sand and not risk it. However, if we ever want to make any kind of change in our lives, grow in any capacity, or experience anything novel at all, 
we have to expose ourselves to new concepts. There is a real risk that we will come across a line of reasoning or thought process that makes us question our own existence, makes us doubt the point of living, or otherwise traps us in a downward spiral of mental affliction as we ruminate over the consequences of our newfound knowledge. That is a philosophical trap. In this chapter, I hope to address some of the philosophical traps that has caused me hours of mental anguish. I hope to give you some solutions to these traps, and subsequently to save you hours of suffering in the process. I was hesitant to include this chapter, because in order to discuss the counters to philosophical traps, I first need to explain them, and show you how they could be troubling. Clearly the issue here is that I could be inadvertently introducing you to the very trap I'm trying to help you overcome. Please consider this warning. Once you know something, it's almost impossible to unknow it. If you are feeling vulnerable or mentally afflicted, skip this chapter for a later stage when you're in a good mental state. I chose to include this chapter because these traps are out there anyway. If you read, think, or talk enough, you'll eventually stumble across them. Therefore, I'd like to give you the mental armour necessary to not be completely derailed by their discovery. Furthermore, there is definitely a positive side to delving deeply into challenging philosophical traps, as it will help you to establish a deeper sense of meaning. If you do come across a philosophical trap that challenges you, causes you mental distress, or leaves you doubting what you believe, that is a good thing. It suggests that whatever the trap is focusing on is important to you in some capacity, and therefore needs to be investigated. If you find a trap triggering, realise that people have been contemplating these very same concepts for a millennia, so the answers will be out there. Search for the name of your trap debunked, or counters to your trap, or addressing the nature of your trap, and they will show you some ways that people before you have come to terms with the concept that you are currently grappling with. Finally, it's important to mention that these philosophical traps are only truly depressing when I'm already in a depressed state of mind. When I'm feeling good, succeeding, occupied, or otherwise not mentally afflicted, these traps rarely come to mind. When they do, they simply don't matter as much. The issue really comes when I'm already in a bad state of mind, and these traps have the tendency to become a point of rumination and despair. Having counters on hand to philosophical traps is a great way to nip them in the bud, before they completely take hold of my mental state. Philosophical Trap 1 We all die. So what's the point? If you're religious, this one may seem confusing. Since most religions promise life after death, the point of life is to secure a place in heaven while avoiding eternal punishment. Therefore, to the religious person, death is merely a transition state. For those who are not religious, or are lacking enough religious conviction, the prospect of death can result in a feeling of pointlessness. Since they do not believe in an afterlife, when their life ends, that's it. They may argue that since we all eventually die, and that everyone that we ever meet will also all die, life is meaningless. Eventually you and I will not be here, and we will be completely forgotten. This motion has some merit. How many generations of your direct descendants, so your parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents, etc., can you even name, let alone state anything about their character, accomplishments, or lives at all? How far back do you need to go before they've been completely forgotten? How many generations will it take for you to be completely forgotten in turn? What's more, science suggests that eventually the universe itself will suffer from heat death. The complete and total extinction of all forms of heat, energy, 
and therefore life as we know it. Without something beyond this life, and even with the concept of an afterlife, the concept of heat death can make this life seem completely pointless. Counter 1 The fact that it all ends, and we will leave nothing, makes life seem completely pointless. However, that pointlessness is not itself necessarily a bad thing. If there is ultimately no point, that means that you are free to let go of everything you are worried about. For your stress, obligation, concerns and challenges are pointless, then the weight of them is significantly reduced. This won't stop your suffering, but it will show you just how pointless your suffering is. This realisation may help you to move on from things that are holding you back, because regardless of where you end up, the result is the same. Pointlessness. You may as well attempt to make a change, move away from pain and into something new, something that could potentially bring you joy. Because in a pointless universe, joy is still better than pain. So why not risk making that change? Counter number two. If you don't believe in God or the afterlife, this life is all that you really have. Prior to your birth, there was essentially an eternity of blackness or complete nothingness. After you die, there will be much of the same. Therefore, right now is the only point of difference, the only point of light, the only point of somethingness. It is important to realise that the life you are living now is the only point of light in an infinite void of nothingness. That alone gives it meaning, or at least makes it special. Feeling bad may be the opposite of feeling good, but not feeling at all is the opposite of feeling. Therefore, while your worst experiences in this life may not be pleasant, they are still feelings nonetheless. Since life is the only point of difference that we know of, it's imperative that we make the most of the short time we have, while we can. The void will be waiting for you when you are done regardless. So while it may be pointless, because we won't be remembered, and because the universe will eventually end, that is not the place to focus on. Instead, focus on the fact that you are alive, that by some freak occurrence, you're experiencing all of this pointlessness. The fact you get to feel that you were here at all says something. Don't squander it. Philosophical Trap 2 Without God, there are no objective morals. Similar to the first philosophical trap, religious people can rely on God's word to help guide their moral behaviours. If they are not sure about the rightness of a particular act, they can consult their religious text or religious leaders for advice. To a believer, God is the creator of the universe and therefore has dictated what is objectively right or objectively wrong behaviour. Thus it is clear how one should act. To the non-believer, there is no objective external source of morality. It must come from within. The next logical step for the non-believer is to realise that this is true for everyone. They may argue that if there is no God, that our morals are simply a construct of our environments. That our inherent feelings of right or wrong are guided by our parents' influences, personal experiences, as well as the time and place that we were born. Thus, morals are truly subjective and can therefore lead to dubious and dangerous practices. They are not wrong to think this way, mind you. A quick look through history and across cultures will show you a wide range of acceptable moral practices that seem abhorrent or confusing to the modern ear. The realisation that every person is making it all up and that there is nothing greater than themselves to look up to can be extremely overwhelming. Imagine looking at everyone and realising that they are either getting their morals from a fictional book 
to the non-believer, all religious texts are a work of fiction, remember, or they are getting it from their own fallible minds. Once they leave the safety and guidance of their parents' homes, the non-believer is on their own, left to ponder the nature of morality for themselves. This leads to many confusing thoughts. How can a mere human possibly know what is right or wrong? How could one person have the insight or wisdom necessary to know the right way to act? Life is far too complicated. Without a source of objective morality to guide us, as a race, we will surely falter. Counter While this apparent lack of direction places all of the responsibility on you, it also places all of the consequences, decisions, and choice on you as well. While potentially overwhelming, this is also completely freeing. The answer to the question, who am I to decide what is right or wrong, becomes, who am I not to? Yes, it's a daunting concept, having to determine a set of morality that suits you, one that you would want to live by, and by extension, would want others to live by. But you are free to choose whatever morals you like, based on whatever reasoning you choose. There is no higher force to justify your choice to. I've not yet cemented my moral code, and I'm uncertain if I ever will. Rather, I prefer to look on it as a journey of discovery. The more I read, the more I'm exposed to, the more I am shaped into discovering what I truly feel is right. In chapter 5.2, Live By Your Values, I talked about how to discover, consider, and then potentially integrate those concepts into your life. I found inspiration for my own moral codes through learning about what individual people value, as well as from looking into the moral codes of different cultures and religions. It will be an ongoing journey of self-discovery to determine what you value. And when you do settle on moral philosophy of your own, you may look back in disgust at your past actions. Be forgiving and know that it's only you that you have to answer to, not to God or anyone else. Philosophical Trap 3 How do I know that anything exists other than myself? What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see, then really simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain. Morpheus in the Matrix. This philosophical trap is known as solipsism. There are many ways solipsism can be expressed, but they all revolve around the inability to prove that anything other than the self exists. Some common expressions include How do I know that I'm not dreaming right now? How do I know that I'm not stuck in some computer simulation? How do I know that I'm not just a brain in a vat being electro-simulated to perceive stimulations? How do I know that I'm not hallucinating? The issue arises when you realise that it's impossible to prove that anything exists beyond the sense of self. To prove that anything external exists requires external stimulus and therefore the use of sensory inputs. Unfortunately, Sensory information does not in and of itself prove that anything external exists. The brain does not see anything, it just interprets sensations sent from the eye via the optic nerve. The same is true for all senses. This is why dreams seem so real. To your brain, you are actually sensing what is occurring, because your brain is receiving those same sensations. During a hallucination, the individual is really seeing, hearing, feeling, smelling, and tasting things that are not real. But because they are sensing it, it certainly feels real. 
this can be very challenging to discern the difference between reality and hallucination. Finally, as technology develops, the gap between reality and simulation will become blurred. It's not hard to imagine a game system so immersive that users struggle to tell if it's real life or not. Given the exponential nature of technology development, it is reasonable to assume that eventually we will invent a simulation game so realistic that the people in the simulation will create a simulation inside of the first simulation, and then those simulations will create a complex simulation themselves. What are the chances that we are the original, real creators, and not one of the potentially infinite simulations? Counter. The answer to the problem of solipsism is to simply act as if the reality that we're experiencing is real. There is no way to prove or disprove solipsism. So by acting if life is real, we are guaranteed to be acting according to our best interests. Regardless if we are dreaming, stuck in a computer simulation, a brain in the vat, or are in fact living in a real world, complete with other sentient inhabitants, our choices and the consequences of those choices will be in line with what we would want them to be. The only caveat for this solution is for those who know that they are suffering from hallucinations. I would strongly advise seeing a professional and following their advice to gain some control and begin to recover. Philosophical Trap 4 Fate versus Free Will People sometimes believe that God, the universe, or fate itself has a predetermined path set out for our lives. They'll believe that the place, cause, and time of their death is set from the moment of birth. They may act in a reckless or careless manner, putting the consequences of their choices down to fate. It was just going to happen anyway. They may also not strive for goals or even attempt to overcome the simplest of hurdles because they believe it's their fate to suffer. They can't have much, if any joy and accomplishments that they do manage to achieve, as it was their fate to do so anyway. They had no real impact of the course of events. This fatalistic approach to life takes away all self-autonomy, as well as the concept of free will. If there is a guiding hand, one that sets the world in motion and knows all that will happen before it happens, then our choices really don't matter. This line of reasoning can lead one down many dark mental paths. Counter. It is impossible to actually determine if our fates are set, or if this is all the product of chance and free will. Since we live in the universe that we would hope to test, there is literally no way of knowing if our actions and subsequent consequences are caused by random chance or fate. Although the probability of my next coin flip is 50-50 heads or tails, the coin landing on tails could be a result of chance or due to fate. How could I possibly determine which one it was? It's impossible. This applies to every single aspect of life. So just like the solution to solipsism presented above, the best course of action is to act like you have free will. That way your life will improve regardless of whether you were destined to do so or not. You either improved because you made a concerted effort to do so, or because you were fated to do so. Regardless, your life has still improved. Philosophical Trap 5. Thoughts of Suicide If you are feeling suicidal or at risk of suicide, please seek the help of an expert immediately. One of the scariest symptoms of depression are the thoughts of ending your own life. Suicide is a significant issue in the community, and according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, it was the leading cause of death for 15 to 44-year-olds 
and the second leading cause of death among 45 to 54-year-olds. These statistics are similar across most Western countries. While thoughts of suicide are not exactly a philosophical trap, suicidal thoughts are clearly quite common and are sadly often acted upon, which is why I feel that they should be addressed here. Typically, people attempt suicide as a way to end their own suffering, and because they feel that the world would be a better place without them. Counter 1. It is vital to realise that suicide doesn't end the pain, it simply passes it on to those who care for you. Although it may feel like people don't care about you, or won't care if you're gone, that is simply not the case. The pain that you are feeling now, while considerable, will be transferred onto all of those who care for you. Even those you don't interact with will often be impacted. Suicidal thoughts are dangerous, as they can be quite contagious. If somebody commits suicide, it opens that door for other people who are considering to do the same. If those people are close to the person who committed suicide, there is an increased risk that they will also commit suicide. I know that this is a terrible thing to consider, but the action of taking your own life will have tremendous consequences beyond you personally. Counter 2 Before making the decision to end it all, the main questions to ask yourself are Have I tried everything possible to change my circumstances and mental state? And have I done everything to attempt to address the issues in my life? Often we can feel immensely depressed, even to the point of suicide, due to the circumstances happening in our lives. For whatever reason, it can seem like the better option to kill ourselves than to change something drastic and see if it changes our outlook. This is simply not the case. It may be true that something will shift how you are feeling. If you are considering ending it all, what harm can possibly come from trying a bunch of different things beforehand? At best, you will have a whole new lease on life, and at worst, you are in the same situation as you were before. Have you tried seeing a psychologist? Have you tried medication? Have you tried meditation? Could you change jobs? Could you sell your house and travel? Could you quit your job? Could you break up with your partner? Could you try something new? Have you reached out to your friends and family for support? Frequently asked questions. Although I know the logical solutions to these kinds of issues, I'm still depressed by them. What can I do? If you are at risk or struggling, speak to a professional therapist for support. They'll be able to guide you through your specific challenges. I get hung up on contemplating these philosophical traps when I'm in a bad mental state. Whereas when I'm in a good mental state, I can still appreciate the line of thought that each trap proposes, but it loses its strength. Although the conclusion is the same, it no longer matters as much, and I can more easily see the positive side of things. If you're struggling with the solutions to a philosophical trap, keep searching for a solution, while also taking action to guard your mental state. Do things that make you feel good. I'm stuck on a particular line from a novel. It's impacting my life in many negative ways. You didn't address this in this chapter. What can I do? This happened to me when I read Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray. In it, there was an entire discussion that leaves the reader very much aware of the power, pull, and allure of youth. While simultaneously informing the reader that it is disappearing and will never return to them. 
This concept rocked me for a while. I felt a deep sense of regret for a wasted youth, and subsequently felt bad for wasting my current youth. As in, future me will surely curse my lack of adventure. Ultimately, this passed, but not before causing significant duress. I overcame this by looking into quotes and discussions into the transient nature of youth, and ended up discovering that while I would act differently had I had my time again, that is both impossible and impractical. I'm a different person to who I was then. All I can do is search for and be the best version of myself now. I suggest that you look into your issue deeply. Read more, ask questions, and talk to others. Ask for their advice and use them as a starting point for your search. Summary Ideas can be enlightening, but also depressing. If left unanswered, some lines of thought can cause tremendous duress. Realise that people have contemplated these same lines of thought for millennia, and the solution is out there to be found. So that was a chapter from the book, How to Get Your Shit Together. It's out now as a paperback, ebook, and audiobook. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can grab yourself a copy.